What child is this? Is anyone missing a baby? <laughs> now, if, if, hopefully I know this child. Uh, this is my daughter, Harper, and she is seven months old today, actually. And uh, <clears throat> we had a different experience with Harper than we did with the other kids. Uh, a lot of you know at least something about my family. We have four kids, and our first three were all born pretty close together. Uh, our oldest, Michael, had just turned three when our third child, Eliza, was born. And so we had three kids in about three years, and some of you know what that's like. I didn't have a lot of time to contemplate things back then. So it was over four years later that Harper came to us. Last May, she was born, and it was a different experience because I had seen my other kids grow up a little bit. I'd seen them learn to walk and to talk. They developed personalities. You know, you, you get to know your kids. You know what they're thinking, what they're going to say or do in situations. And so I had all that history with my other kids. And then here in my arms for the first time, as I looked into Harper's eyes, I asked that question, what child is this? Who, who are you? What will you be like? What will you become? And it... It just felt so new. I didn't, I didn't know her yet. And it's the Christmas season now, and this is Harper's first Christmas. And I've had a chance to contemplate and to think and to ponder about the first time Mary looked into her firstborn son's eyes, into Jesus' eyes, and to ask a similar question. What child is this? What will you be like? What will you become. She had some notion, something was different, what the angel had told her, the prophecies that were made, and yet, what will he be like? Who is this child? And it's a relevant question for us 2,000 years later today. Who is Jesus? That's one of the most important questions that we can ask, and we're going to answer that question by actually going 700 years back before Jesus was born to a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Who is this Jesus? Well, thank you, Harper. You slept right through your performance. So you've heard this verse before, Isaiah 7, 14. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. It's a, it's a pretty popular one. And you've, you've heard pastors talk about it around Christmas time. Maybe you've gotten a Christmas card with it written there on it. You've seen a sign on someone's front yard with that verse. And yet, what is the context? What is the rest of Isaiah 7 about? Have you ever asked yourself that? Have you ever looked, opened up the Bible and, and, and looked at Isaiah chapter 7? What is it actually about? You might assume, well, it must be about Jesus. It must be about this Messiah that's going to come. And yet, what you'll find there is kind of surprising and a little bit confusing because it can feel like this verse comes out of nowhere. And we're kind of left with, how in the world, why, why do we apply this to Jesus? And so what I want to do this morning is give us some context for this verse. And what we'll find, luckily, is it doesn't contradict what we've believed before, but it actually adds a fuller, more complete understanding to this prophecy in the Bible. 
So let's start off with Isaiah 7. I'm going to um, just kind of be paraphrasing, walking through the story, but you're welcome to follow along in your Bible, Isaiah chapter 7. It starts off with King Ahaz. King Ahaz is a king of Judah, and this is during the time in Israel's history where it's a split kingdom. After, after David and Solomon were kings, the, the kingdom split. You had the, the ten tribes in the north and then the two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin. So it's usually referred to as Israel in the north and Judah in the south. So King Ahaz is a king of the southern kingdom, Judah. And the, the capital city there is Jerusalem. And King Ahaz, he's got some trouble. You see, there's these two kings north of him, the king of Israel and the king of Syria, that have come to attack him. It says this, The king of Israel and Syria set out to attack Jerusalem. However, they were unable to carry out their plan. The hearts of the king and his people trembled with fear like trees shaking in a storm. So he's got these enemies that are coming and planning an attack on him. They haven't been able to pull it off yet, but they're there. They're ready. They have a plan. What is Ahaz supposed to do? Well, if you've read your Bible before, you might go, okay, this is the place where God steps in and does something. And you'd be right. God sends the prophet Isaiah, that's the book we're in, he sends the prophet Isaiah with a word from the Lord to Ahaz. And this is what he says. Stop worrying. You don't need to worry about this. You don't need to worry about, he calls them two burned out stumps. They're old news. They're not going to last They're going away very soon. I've got this. Trust me. It says, stand firm in your faith and I will make you firm. It's this invitation to trust God. He's got it. Don't worry about these enemies. And that sounds good, but I'm not sure Ahaz believed it. Because right away, what we see next is that God sends Isaiah to Ahaz again with another message. And this time, the message is ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as the grave or as high as the heaven. You're worried. You're not sure how this is going to turn out. Well, ask God for a sign. Let him prove to you that he is with you. Let him prove to you that he loves you and he will take care of it. That's what Isaiah is telling Ahaz to do. And Ahaz responds with this. I will not test. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now that might sound familiar. And it might sound like the right answer in this situation. Oh, I'm not going to test God like that. I, you know, I know what Deuteronomy 6 says. It says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Remember, Jesus quotes that when he's being tempted. And so that sounds like the right answer, but it might be that Ahaz is taking this verse out of context a little bit. God is inviting him to ask a sign. God wants to show him that he can trust him. But Ahaz isn't going to do it. And it's not because he's humble, it's actually because Ahaz doesn't really trust God. It's actually because Ahaz has already made a plan to figure it out on his own. He's not going to trust God for salvation, for rescue, for help. He's made his own plan. And if you go back to 2 Kings chapter 16, you see his plan. He makes a deal with the king of Assyria. So even further north, big kingdom, they're the the ones who come and, and take Israel away captive in just a few short years. So he... He's already made a deal with him to attack Syria, to attack Israel. I don't need God. I can do this on my own. So he doesn't need a sign from God. But God has a sign for him anyways, and that's why we get to verse 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, what does that have to do with Jesus? Because in the context here, it seems like God is giving Ahaz a sign. Let me show you that I will take care of this situation. The prophecy even goes on. By the time this child is old enough to know good and to know right from wrong, they're not even going to be a problem anymore. The, the land is going to be desolate. I've taken care of those kings. They're going to be gone. And so it seems to have an immediate fulfillment that needs to, to take place. And it leaves us with this question of, wait, what about Jesus? And sure enough, in the next chapter, in chapter 8, there is a child that is born. A young woman, that's another translation of that word for virgin there, we'll talk about that later, but this young woman, she gives birth to a son, and she calls his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Doesn't sound much like Emmanuel, does it? No, Emmanuel means God with us. Maher Shalal Hashbaz means easy prey which does not have a good connotation to it. And yet, by the time that this child can call his mom, mom and dad, God has taken care of those other nations. The the land of Judah is going to have more problems down the road, but this is not a problem for them right now. It's been taken care of. And so we see an immediate fulfillment already in the next chapter to this prophecy, and yet it kind of leaves you wanting a little bit. There seems to be something missing. It doesn't seem to be quite the fulfillment maybe you were hoping for. And as you continue reading, you see that out of this desolate land now in the north, in chapter 9, it talks about there will be a son born. And and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. And of, of the growth of his government will never end. And that doesn't sound like Mahershalal Hashbaz. So maybe we're still waiting for someone else to come. Maybe we're still waiting for an answer to this prophecy. And that brings us to Christmas. So just to to remind you really quick, to sum up that context there, King Ahaz of Judah, he's in trouble. These enemies are coming to attack him, and he has a choice. Is he going to trust God and his plan for salvation, or is he going to trust in himself and make a way on his own? And we are faced with that same choice every day. Do I trust God to save me? Do I trust God for help in this life? Or am I going to figure it out on my own? What I want to do today is I want to take that one verse, Isaiah 7, 14. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And I want to grab a a few phrases from that and, and dig deeper into each of those phrases and see how this prophecy is really about Jesus. And we can see the hope that it brings because it is about Jesus. So that first phrase there, the virgin shall conceive. We're going to get a little nerdy here, a little word nerdery going on. Um, And it's actually pretty fun, okay? Stay with me. This is fun, and it's interesting. So the word here that's used for the virgin, it's the Hebrew word alma. And what it really means, you can translate it as virgin, and sometimes they do that. You can also translate it as young young woman, Um, But really the the best translation for it is like a maiden, a woman who is mature enough to have kids, but she's not married yet. But there's some ambiguity with this word. There's some elasticity with it. And I think that it's important. I think Isaiah does that on purpose because it makes it possible for in the next chapter, his very wife to give birth to a son and she conceived the natural way. Um, She was not a virgin. This was a normal conception. And so 
it makes it possible for that to be a partial fulfillment of this, of this prophecy. And yet we look towards something greater. Because then we get all the way to Jesus. We get to Matthew one twenty three, And Matthew quotes this very same verse. But who does he make it about? Who does he say that it's about? He says it's about Jesus. And that right there is enough for us. The fact that Matthew, who's writing scripture says that this verse is about Jesus, tells us that it is about Jesus. The best interpretation from the Bible that we get is when the Bible interprets itself. And so we look at that and we go, okay, this must be about Jesus. Now I want to connect the dots. But when Matthew is writing that, he has to translate it. And once again, reminder for you, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek. And so when Matthew has to translate that word there, Alma, into a word, what does he do? He doesn't use the word for young woman or maiden. He uses the Greek word for an actual virgin, making this a very miraculous birth. And it fits with the story. In Luke 1.34, when the angel is talking to Mary, what does she say? How will this be since I am a virgin, since I have not known a man? How is this possible? We see how important how, how miraculous this virgin birth is. And it is a, a fuller, complete fulfilling of this prophecy. The doctrine of the virgin birth is essential to the doctrine of Christ. It, it helps us understand how Jesus could be fully God and fully man. It helps us understand how God saves us, not us. It's not two humans coming together to bring this special child. No, it's God working with man. And Jesus was fully God and fully man. And that's what the virgin birth brings out. It brings out the divinity of God, that he was, of Jesus, that he was God. So that's the virgin. Virgin shall conceive. The next phrase we come to is, and bear a son. And for that, I want to go to Luke chapter 2. Verses 4 through 7. We're going to put it up. I'm going to be bouncing around a lot. So we're going to put it up on the screen so you can look at it there. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the guest room. You ever noticed how quickly it happens there? You can watch a whole movie about the birth of Jesus and they could take an hour to get to that point and yet it happens so quickly when you read through it in the Bible. And we see how extraordinary the, the virgin conception was. His miraculous conception was extraordinary and yet... When you read that, his birth was pretty ordinary. I mean, the place wasn't, but overall, it was a normal human birth. I want to look more closely at verse 7 here. There's a few phrases I want to bring out. The first one, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. That, has the, that gives us the impression that this was a normal birth. A normal human mother giving birth to a child. It was painful and messy. We like to imagine that it was just some pain-free birth that was wonderful, but the Bible doesn't say that. Our assumption is this was the normal way that most kids have been born for thousands and thousands of years, if not in a normal location. She gave birth to a human baby. And what does she do? 
She wrapped him in swaddling cloths. One of the first things I learned as a new dad was how to swaddle a baby. And I was lucky, though, because by the time I started having kids, they had invented these blankets, especially for swaddling. They have Velcro in them. It's wonderful. I don't know if I could have figured it out otherwise. Now, I don't think Mary had one of those, but this tells us something about Jesus. He was a baby child that needed to be swaddled. He needed that warmth, that protection, that comfort that comes from being swaddled. And so Mary swaddled him. He was a human child. And then what does she do next? And laid him in a manger. Now this is where things start to get strange. We don't typically lay our children in animal feeding troughs. But that's what she had available. And that speaks to the humility of his birth. He was her firstborn son that she wrapped up and then laid him in a makeshift crib for him to sleep. If the virgin conception speaks to the miraculous deity of Jesus, his birth speaks to his humanity. He was fully God and fully man. And that leads us to this last phrase, Emmanuel. As you're reading through Isaiah, and there's this child that's born, you're expecting them to name him Emmanuel, right? That's what the prophecy said, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And yet, they name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz. I'm going to keep saying it so you remember it after today. And like, okay, that's kind of missing. So, so now you're expecting, okay, we're looking toward a greater fulfillment of this prophecy. This is going to be great. So this child that's going to be born sometime in the future, his name actually will be Emmanuel. And so Mary gives birth to her firstborn son, and what does she name him? Not Emmanuel. No. In fact, Joseph was told in his dream to name him Jesus, Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins. And maybe it leads you kind of wondering, okay, well, why didn't they name him Emmanuel? Wasn't that what the prophecy said? But if you go over to John, we're going to read John's birth narrative as well, which is a little bit different than the other birth narratives. John 1, 1 through 5. The kids said this earlier during the performance. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. As you're reading this, later on we find out who the Word is. The Word is Jesus. And what does this tell us about Jesus? Jesus was with God in the beginning. In fact, he was God. And this is really important for when you get to verse 14. Let's see what verse 14 says. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I want to translate that a little bit. If we remember, word means Jesus. So, and Jesus became flesh. You could, flesh means man or human. So, and, and Jesus became a man and dwelt. You know what word is actually there, that dwelt word? It's actually the word for tabernacle. It changed into a verb. And so you could say it like this, and Jesus became a man and tabernacled among us. Now, that sounds a little strange. We wouldn't usually say that, but, but think back. What did the tabernacle represent in the Old Testament? 
That was the place where God dwelt with his people. The very presence of God came down and dwelt with his people in the tabernacle. And now he's done it again, but he's done it a little bit different. God has come down to us as one of us in order to save us. Jesus, his name may not have been Emmanuel, but he is the fullest expression of that term. He is the literal understanding of what that name means. He is God with us. God come down to be a man, to be one of us, to be with us, to die for us. And that leads us to our next question that we have to ask. Because I believe that it's clear that Isaiah 7.14 is truly about Jesus. Matthew makes that clear. Matthew tells us that. But the question we have to ask is why? Why was it important for the virgin to conceive and to bear a son and call his name Emmanuel? Why did God need to come down to be with us? Why is that so important? Why are we here celebrating Christmas this year again? So why did God do that? To save the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We have a problem, and our problem is sin. Ever since the beginning, we've had this problem of sin that separates us from the good God who created the universe. And because of that, we have no hope in saving ourselves. We cannot be good enough to make ourselves right with God, to make ourselves at one with God again, to be with him. But God loved us so much that he sent his son. He came down himself and lived among us, lived a perfect life, and then died on the cross for our sins so that we could be with him forever. That's why God did this. We need some context here. I said that at the beginning, and we've kind of gotten away from it. So I want to go back to Isaiah chapter 7. Ahaz had a problem, and we're not Ahaz, and we have different problems than he did. And yet, we do have a problem, don't we? And our problem is sin. Because of sin, we're separated from God. Because of sin, every day we, in the world around us, we face sickness and death and destruction. And we need a solution to that problem. And God has given us a sign. For Ahaz, it was a sign in the future. For us, it's a sign we look back on. Because the virgin did conceive, and she bore a son. And he was Emmanuel, the fullest embodiment of God with us. But she named him Jesus, because he saved his people from their sins. And so here we are today, celebrating Christmas once again, celebrating this gift that God has given us. And you have a choice. You have a choice with the problems that are around you, with sin and death and destruction all around us. Our choice is either to trust in ourselves to figure it out, to make a plan, get together with some people, come up with some good ideas for a plan to save ourselves, or we can trust God in the work that he has already done by sending his son to die on the cross for our sins. 
And that's the choice that we have before us once again today. Do I trust in myself to make a way, or do I trust in God who has already made a way? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall never die, but shall have eternal life. Believe that and be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we are sinners in need of a Savior. We need your help. And you have already made a way for us by sending your Son to die on the cross for our sins. You prophesied about it 700 years before it happened, and then, God, you sent your Son to be born of a virgin, to be God with us, to live a perfect, sinless life, and to die on the cross for our sins. And I pray that we would believe that today. For all of us that have already believed that, God, I pray that we would believe it again, that we would remember it, that we would rejoice in the hope that we have in you. But for anyone out there that has not believed that today, Lord, I pray that you would work on their heart, that you would show them their sin and their need for you. You'd break down those walls and that they would believe in Jesus as their Savior for the first time. They'd be welcomed into your family and into eternal life with you. I pray that you would make that clear, that gospel message clear to every single one of us today. And you would remind us throughout the, throughout the next two weeks, God, as we celebrate your son's birth, you would remind us every day of the real reason that we celebrate this and the real reason that you came. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.